All right, grab your Bible. Quit placating the pastor, even though it's true. Um, Romans 4, that's where we're at today. Now, this is the sixth session of Romans. And again, remember, as we get started today, just so we're all on the same page, the title of this is called Exposed, the Shocking Truth of the Gospel. And so the whole idea is for you to be shocked at least once. Uh, that has to do with the scripture, not me being silly or stupid. So, um, the whole idea here is that the first three chapters of Romans is the diagnosis section of the book. So, the whole purpose of chapters one through three is to remove any escape, to remove any doubt, to make sure that every person stands guilty and indicted for sin that's incurable. And is deserving of death. That's the first three chapters. That's not a lot of fun going on in the first three chapters of the book of Romans. But now from today, chapter 4 to chapter 12 or 11, is basically what I call the declaration section of this book. Where now Paul is going to champion and trumpet the radical nature of the gospel. And it is going to be shocking. Already it's been shocking, right? Because we learned in the first three chapters that no matter how good we were, we still weren't good. Um, so now he's going to start talking about today justification by faith, which is basically just as shocking because how many of you know yourself? It's like we know us. We know what we do when nobody's around. We know what we think. We know uh, how we respond to things and how we react to things. And now we're going to find out that in Christ we are justified by faith, not of works. Uh, and that's shocking as well. Uh, you know, it seems like grace is always given to the wrong people from our perspective, right? It's always to the most egregious sinner, the most notorious loser. Jesus always had the most compassion for, and the people that had it all together uh, received his, you know, unbridled scorn. So it's interesting to look at it from the perspective of the gospel because it is definitely liberating and freeing once we get over being angry that everything we did before didn't really matter as much as we thought it did. Um, so as we get started here, let me just give you a couple of definitions of the, uh, of the idea or just what grace really is. It's, it's not an idea, is it? It is a person. His name is Jesus. So the author Paul Zahn writes it this way. He said, grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. So God's love is seeking you, chasing you, uh, relentlessly after you when you have nothing to, to reciprocate with. You have no reciprocity. There's nothing in you that he needs. And that's the idea. When you get a hold of this, then you can begin to live your life in such a way that you can give everything to other people not needing or expecting or wanting them to give anything back. And that's, that's radical. That's crazy, right? He goes on to say, grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. Grace is being loved when you are unlovable. And then uh, in his book, One Way Love, Tulian Chavidian quotes uh, Christian author Robert Capon, and he puts it this way, grace works without requiring anything on our, on our part. It's not expensive. It's not even cheap. It's free. And, you know, I know that really grinds on a lot of people to think that it's cheap, you know, it's greasy grace, it doesn't mean anything, and that's not the point there. The point is, like I said a week or two ago, when we talked about the parable of the, of the um, 
Good Samaritan, right? We've always thought we were the Good Samaritan. We were supposed to be the Good Samaritan. We were supposed to be that person, yet nobody's ever been that person. Nobody could ever be that person. That's the point. Who are you going to go help and then put them up in the Ritz and then leave your debit card in your pen and say, whatever they need until I get back, take care of it. None of you have ever done that. It's undoable from a human perspective. But yet Jesus is the Good Samaritan. And you and I, we are the beleaguered, bloodied traveler who couldn't help himself, who was picked up, wound, wounded and broken, healed and, and cared for by Jesus, and then taken to a place of rest and left there until his return. And he left a debit card with a pen and said, whatever they need while I'm gone, it's already paid for up front and in advance. That is the radical nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so this whole concept of getting it in right order is really empowering and liberating. And, and that's how we must look at Jesus who is grace and truth. So now let's just pick it up here in Romans 4. And we're just going to work down through the first eight verses here. Paul's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. You know, most of us believe that when we make mistakes, God's counting that sin against us. When actually in Christ, he's counting righteousness for us and toward us and upon us. Uh, that is the reckoning that's happening. Reckon is a, you know, I used to think it was just a, a word Clint Eastwood used before he shot somebody. I, I reckon so, you know. Uh, and then I found out, you know, later on in life that it's actually a mathematical term that has to do with accounting and, and being reckoned a certain way. And so now God reckons you and I righteous in Him, justified in Him. You know, and this is a trip when you're sitting there thinking, I could, I'm one heartbeat away from standing in eternity. Is this the real deal? And it is. And that's why it's good news. Watch this now. Just as David, uh, account, no, let me back up, verse 4. Now unto him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Uh, so if we're working for it and, you know, expending our energy and making sure it happens, I was just thinking there uh, a moment ago, Eve got a text from a friend who's, you know, just sort of grappling with some of these concepts. And she wrote Eve and said, so you're telling me that if I don't tithe, I'm not cursed with a curse? And then in parentheses, by the way, I'm not trying to get out of tithing. <laughs> I'm just trying to get out from under condemnation. You know, and she said that before that if they couldn't tie, they forgot to tie or whatever, that then something would happen in life and the clutch would go out or somebody would back into the car and then all of a sudden the money's gone and then that was God, you know, punishing her for not tithing. And, and, and nothing could be further from the truth. And as I was writing the check there, uh, as I finally found a pen in my wife's purse, it's so little but yet so cavernous. <laughs> the purse, the purse that is, I just can't find anything. I, I start freaking out anytime she tells me to get something out of my purse. I just can't handle it. <laughs> I immediately take a Xanax and try to, try to breathe. Anyway, as I was writing the check, I was thinking about how often we ascribe our giving to our blessing. And, you know, it's a wonderful life to be generous. And I get all that. And I think that's God's heart. But 
to, to, to say, when I gave this, God gave me that. He gives that to us not to support what we're doing, but that's His grace blessing us anyway, hoping that we'll get a hold of the real gospel like Abraham did. He was blessed first, and then he gave. And so to know that we're blessed and have everything that we need uh, pertaining to life and godliness in Christ, that's what causes us to be generous, not thinking, man, if I write a big enough check, I'm gonna, maybe my Toyota will turn into a Mercedes by the time I get out of church. You know, I don't know. Anyway... Kind of off topic, but but I'm saying God moves for even when we're religious, there's grace, right? Because we're we're truly, uh, you know, with a pure heart trying to figure all this out. So he goes on to say, I have no idea where I left off, but that's okay. Verse 5. Did I read 5 or I left off it? Okay, so here we go. Verse 5. Thank you. Uh, but to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. Somebody say he's talking about me again. At least before Christ, that was us. We were ungodly, but God justifies uh, the ungodly. His faith or her faith is accounted or reckoned to them for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. He's quoting now David in the Old Testament. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. So once you're in Christ, and the Bible says he died for us once and for all, so once we are born again of the Spirit of God, we are in him and, and we are righteous in him forever. That's just the fact of the finished work of Jesus. And so your sin is not imputed to you. Uh, again, a lot of people say, well, that's going to make people go out and sin. Well, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the strength of sin is the law. The strength of sin, nowhere in the Bible does it say, is grace. So the strength of sin is the law. So where there's law, where there's religious uh, approaches, where there's guilt and condemnation, there's going to be more sin. But when people are released from that and recognize that the finished work of Jesus has paid for it once and for all, they actually live free from the bondage of sin and their life actually looks less sinful than it would otherwise. And then also in Titus chapter 2, the Bible says that the same grace that saved us also teaches us how to live beyond ungodliness and all those things so grace is not a doctrine grace is embodied in jesus and the church needs to know what it says and what it is um so check this out from the time we're very little uh, we we sort of have this idea that if we do good in school make good grades our parents will love us uh you know if we get a good job we can buy a nice car and maybe get a date with a pretty girl um you know, if we don't do certain things, then, you know, other bad things will happen. And so we're constantly uh, enmeshed in this idea that there's the carrot and the stick and we've got to perform to get something out of it. And in the world kind of functions that way, doesn't it? But we're part of a different kingdom. And when we come into the kingdom of God, then it's really hard for us sometimes to grasp the fact that this is a free gift that we only have to believe to receive. Uh, let me read to you a recent article from Irvine, California. Saying he doesn't even feel like trying anymore, eight-year-old Max Bledsoe expressed his strong disappointment Monday after learning that his parents' love is unconditional. <coughs> I always thought they loved me because I'd actually earned it, but unfortunately it turns out that their affection is apparently limitless. 
said a frustrated Bledsoe, wondering aloud the point of doing well in school, learning how to play the piano, and always going to bed before 9 p.m. If his parents were just going to keep on loving him no matter what, he quotes, Look at me. I just wasted the last three years of my life trying to win their approval and being, uh, by being a good kid. And for what? To get the love that was coming to me anyway? Bledsoe added that he envied his adopted younger brother who really had to work for his parents' love. And that pretty much sums up religious people. You know why it ticks them off? You know why grace ticks them off? Because they worked so hard. You've got to be kidding me that all that I've done, all that I've given, all that I've served, all that I've done, all that I've studied, all that I've, 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 I've extrapolated and dissected and exegetical, exegesis, hermeneutical, homiletical, theoretical, all this stuff didn't make God love me anymore. That's why they don't like it. Because they want to think, people want, humans want to think that because of what I did, God loved me more. It's just not true. God loves you, period. He loves you in spite of you. He loved you without you. He loved you the most for nothing that you did. That's grace. The love of God is all about the love-er and not the loved it's, the gospel is all about the work of the redeemer, none of the work of the redeemed. The work of the redeemed will change the world, but not until they know that the redeemer loved them no matter what. Man, this is, this is radical. It's, it's, it's shocking because it's so foreign to the way we've always sort of thought that it was. Uh, the rest of the chapter sort of follows this vein. Verse 13 says, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Righteousness means right standing. It means to be right with God. It means righteousness. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Uh, you see how that works? God brought the law to Moses so people's sins would be identified. He wanted people to recognize their sinfulness, not to make them think they're supposed to live according to it, but to let them see that there's no way they could. That was, that's always the purpose. In fact, in Jesus' own ministry, when he spoke to Jews, he always preached hyper law so they would know it couldn't be done. But we've somehow took, taken those words and, and made them some kind of formula that we're supposed to try to keep today. You know, I had somebody call me this week, and I get a lot of calls these days about this stuff. And this lady that goes to another church and has heard about us and, and, and it finds herself desiring to, to know more about, you know, good news gospel, she said, well, didn't Jesus say that if we don't forgive, we can't be forgiven? Well, there's two rules that you have to remember when reading Scripture. Number one, who is he talking to? And number two, what is the context of what he's saying? He said that on the Sermon on the Mount. Guess who he was talking to? Jews. Guess what he was doing? Preaching a hyper law to let them know nobody could do it. You know, if, if your salvation is based on you forgiving, then guess who your salvation is based on? You. That takes grace right out of it. And frankly, if your salvation is based on you forgiving, you're in trouble. There could be some superlatives there that you couldn't say in church, but you're, you're messed up. 
You're jacked. You're going to hell. How about when he said you've got to forgive to be forgiven or, or you've got to love to be loved? You're in trouble again. How can you do that? See, the whole point is Jesus, God, became a man and stood for you and I. And he did all that on our behalf. This is the gospel. And so in him, in his vicarious death, in his substitutionary death and resurrection, we have all that we need now in him, and he's completed all those requirements. So whenever you hear something like that, and you could read that and find yourself in condemnation even in the New Testament, so you read something that says, man, uh, you've got to love to be loved. Okay, well, what you have to do is grab your mind, you know that same mind that the doctor calls you because they lost your blood? I remember one time, let me just, I'll just give you my own example. Because you know your mind just goes there right away, right? From zero to a thousand in a nanosecond. And I, I was on staff at, at another church. This is, you know, many years ago. And I wasn't always a, a good guy. Way before I met my wife, I was a, pretty much a scumbag. And so the church was taking a life insurance policy out on me. Um, which they did for all their employees, and they took a little mouth swab for HIV. So then, uh, you know, and again, that's got a shelf life of some years, right? And, and I, I wasn't that far out of my stupid years. And so um, all of a sudden my insurance agent calls. He goes, hey, they lost your swab. They're going to have to come do that again. And immediately I'm thinking, I've got AIDS. <laughs> I mean, I went from they've lost your swab to they're going to make a movie about me, you know? So that mind right there, you know, that mind we have to rein in and say, hey, simmer down there, big boy. Because all these requirements that you can read in Scripture have been fulfilled in Jesus. And your faith in Him, that's what we're talking about. Faith in Jesus is what causes you to be justified, not anything else. So the whole chapter 4 is the beginning of this championing of the truth of the gospel in such a way that it will radically mess up your theology. So he goes on. Uh, because the law brings about wrath, for where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also of those who are faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And then he just goes on down. And then he starts talking about the deadness of Abraham's body, the deadness of Sarah's womb. So let me just pick it up down here in verse 20. He did not waver at the promise through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that he, had, he who had promised, he was also able to perform it, and therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now let me just say this, that we have a tendency to look at people like, Abraham as a hero of the faith, right? And of course, he's our father in the faith, and he believed God. When the chips were down, I mean, he was 100. His wife was 90. You might as well part the Red Sea. That's a miracle, right? And he believed God. You know, he tithed 430 years before the law. So tithing is not a law thing. It's a heart thing. He was blessed by God. The Bible says Melchizedek blessed him, and then he reciprocated with, a, with, with generosity. That's the model, not give to get, but give because we believe we've gotten. That's how it works. 
okay? We saw him go after five kings, defeat them all, you know, deliver his, his nephew. He interceded for his nephew one time. When, when God had decided to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham stood right before Jesus and said, wait a minute. Would you kill everybody there if there was 50 righteous, worked them all the way down to 10? And, and God said, yeah. And there still wasn't even 10. But because a man cared about another man, somebody prayed for somebody else, God delivered Lot and his family. So I believe intercessory prayer is very important. But, 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 but look at this. Let me just say it this way. There are no heroes in the scripture except Jesus. Because they're all jacked up just like me and you. Rahab the harlot. Ruth the Moabitess. David the adulterous murderer. Bathsheba the adulteress. I mean, we could go on and on, couldn't we? And we, we tend to think, oh man, the heroes of the faith are so wonderful. Rahab the harlot. You could probably pull that one off if you wanted to. Right? It's like... They're just regular people with a lot of issues. And God used them to tell you and I, hey, if I could use Rahab the harlot and put her right in the lineage of Jesus, the Messiah, don't think I can't drop down into the San Gregonio Pass and grab your little life and do whatever I want with it. The hero of every verse, of every book, of every story is Jesus. Because Abraham... Right when God called him in Genesis 12, I want you to get up and leave your father's house. Aye, aye, sir, grabs his nephew by the hand, his brother's son, and took him off with him. He defied the order in moment one. You ever done that? Sure you have. So have I. Then he lied, not once but twice, about Sarah being his sister. Oh, I know. The scholars say, well, I don't think Abraham lied. I mean, technically she was a sister. Yeah, but his motivation, his motivation belies the truth. The motivation was he's afraid to die, not he was afraid that she was his sister and his wife and probably his cousin. They were from the Arkansas part of Heron. I was born in Arkansas, so don't send me any mean letters. I can talk about my, my kinfolks if I want to. His motivation wasn't bragging on his sister. His motivation was he didn't want to die. So he put her in harm's way because he didn't want to tell the truth. This is Abraham. He had a a, a baby with his wife's maidservant. Never a good idea. And a lot of other stuff that we're going to see. Let me just take you there. Genesis 15. This is where God makes a covenant with Abraham, Abram as it was in those days. And so he starts off by saying, Abram, I'm your, your shield, your, you know, your, your um, how does he say, I am your uh, shield and your exceedingly great reward. And so uh, then Abram begins to complain, Lord, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is my, one of my servants from Damascus? Uh, look, you've given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. So now he's, he's going beyond complaining. He's whining. Okay, He's the father of us all. Maybe that's why we have these same issues. And then the word of the Lord came to him and said, This one shall not be your heir, but the one that will come from your own body. Pretty clear, right? And uh, so he took, takes him outside in verse 5 and said, Look toward the heaven and count the stars, and if you're able to number them, this will be your descendants. 
And he believed in the Lord, verse 6, and the Lord accounted it to him for righteousness. And then the Lord went a step further and said, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees. I give you this land as an inheritance. Uh, inheritance. And then it's like saying the word Walmart in front of your, your toddler. And then he says, Lord God, how will I know that I will inherit it? He's right back on it again, questioning, doubting. You know, somebody called me this week and said, but if I doubt, does that mean I'm not saved? And I said, no. It means you're human. Get back and just wash yourself in the Word. It's okay. God expects you to be uh, who you are, and you're going to struggle sometimes. Even Abram did it. So then the Lord says, okay, I'm going to speak your language. So he tells them to bring these animals. They cut the animals in half. It's kind of gross, but that's how they did blood covenants in those days, almost like a, a wedding ceremony without all the dead animals. But they would go through this ceremony, and one would take the name of the other, and they would make vows to one another and say, okay, everything I have is yours. Everything you have is mine, like a wedding, right? And um, so he comes back, splits all the animals. So now God knows that Abram's going to understand this type of scenario. He knows it's eternal now. He knows it's unbreakable. So they lay out all the animals and then vultures come down. Abram runs off the vultures. So God's like, okay, this kid's not going to let me do this without him trying to get in my way. So he puts him to sleep in a deep sleep, the Bible says. While he's in the deep sleep, a smoking oven and a flaming torch. It sounds kind of odd, but it's actually a pre-incarnate Christophany of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. God the Son. So Jesus comes down. God the Father is establishing a covenant with Abram. Jesus comes and he walks through the midst of the pieces of flesh. Establishing a unilateral covenant. You know what that means? It means one party does the work. A unilateral agreement is one party is making an agreement. A unilateral covenant is God himself making a covenant with God the Son. You know, even before Bethlehem, he was God the Son, right? So God the Father makes a covenant with God the Son, having to put Abram in a state of rest so he'll stay out of the way and stop trying to work. Let the Father do it. And my study Bible tells me that the Hittite covenant of Abram's day the cultural uh, system that was in place in Abraham's day um, was that the puppet um, ruler, which would be the lower party of the two, the lowest party, the lesser of the two parties, would actually walk through the pieces. So God humbles himself below Abram and establishes a covenant that you and I now benefit from. And you might be thinking, well, wait a minute. I don't believe God would do that, wouldn't he? Didn't Jesus go to a cross and die between two thieves to lower himself to our place? To serve us, to be below us? He became sin. We became righteousness so we could be justified. Isn't that what he did? It's like the story of the pastor who was dying. He calls his banker and his accountant. Neither of them knew why he called them. They go to the house and they just come in. And so he just says, just stand here next to the bed, both of you. And then he just lays back. And after a long period of silence, the, the accountant says, well, pastor, we appreciate you inviting us, but what, what would you like us to do? He said, I don't really. So let's just back that up for a minute. So the pearl of great price is a picture of the merchant 
who is Jesus, who gave everything for you and for me. Because you could never give everything for him. You don't believe it? Who in here has sold everything and given it all to Jesus? Exactly. Remember the rich young ruler? Well, I've done all that. I've kept the commandments since my youth. Okay, well then sell everything you got and give it away. Uh, well, uh... Mm, duh. Not possible. See, Jesus went hyper-law on him to prove it can't be done. So what did he do? He didn't expect you to give everything. He likes you to have new car smell once in a while. He likes you to have a nice house once in a while. He likes you to be blessed and enjoy your life, take your wife out on dates once in a while. So what Jesus did is he came, he found you, he was relentlessly pursuing you, he caught you, and he gave everything for you. And that's how he loves you. And that's the gospel. It's not you being the good Samaritan. It's not you being the merchant. What do you got anyway that he, that he needs? How could you even afford to even think about that? He gave it all for us. He's Jesus. He's the lover of our soul. He's the one that submitted himself to a lower point than us because we were so priceless to him. In John 13, this is when Jesus washed the feet of the disciples. And I love this because verse 3 says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he wanted to have a Jesus appreciation meeting. He wanted some birthday presents and a nice Rolls Royce from the congregation to honor and bless him because he was so wonderful and special. Did I get the wrong version? No, he got up after knowing everything that was about to kick off in just a matter of hours. The king of the universe, the merchant that had found a pearl of great price, got up from the table and girded himself. And as a servant would do in those days, you would walk for miles, your feet would be dusty, you would sit down at a table when you got to where you were going and they would have a servant come and wash your feet. So Jesus of Nazareth wrapped himself in a towel, got on his knees, and washed the nasty, dirty feet of a bunch of fishermen. And, you know, we like to have foot washing ceremonies and all this kind of nonsense. That's not what this is about, you going around washing somebody's nasty feet. This is about you recognizing that Jesus washes yours. And he still does by the Holy Spirit taking you to the water of the word. This is not about something we're supposed to emulate. This is something we're supposed to enjoy. This is something that we're supposed to receive by faith. You don't believe it? Watch this in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. If you were raised below the Mason-Dixon line, he gave himself for her. Come on, somebody. It's all right if you're from the South. I know you thought that was the opposite. She's supposed to give your, herself for you. That he might say, watch this now, that he might sanctify and cleanse her. Notice she's not done anything yet except be the bride. She's just busy being. He's busy doing. 
He's giving himself for her. Now he is going to sanctify and cleanse her. How? With the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself. Again, nothing to do with what we do. He's doing it all. He's doing it for himself because he loves us so much. He knows we can't do it on our own. How many sermons have you heard about, well, Jesus would come back if y'all just stopped being so nasty and get your, your, your stuff together? Church has got too many blemishes and, 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 and imperfections. We need to get in the Word and get ourselves sanctified, and then Jesus will come back. That's not how it works. You're already sanctified in Him. You're already holy and blameless in Him. You're already the righteousness of God in Him. You're already justified by faith in Him. Woo, I don't ever get tired of the gospel. And watch this. So that he might present her to himself a glorious church. When you looked at yourself in the mirror this morning, you probably didn't look like that 17 or 18-year-old athlete or cheerleader that you so well remember that you look like. You don't. But God sees you as glorious. Even with your clothes off. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. This is the gospel in all of its outrageous, scandalous truth. I'm going to finish with this, Galatians 3, 10 through 13. For as many as are of the works of the law... They are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things that are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So the just, meaning the justified, can only get there by living in faith, by faith in Christ, right? Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. You, you, like that? you got a favorite one or two? Well, you get the other eight for free. You got a favorite one? I like the little bumper sticker thing that says, uh, the fourth commandment is still the fourth commandment, or the Sabbath is the fourth commandment, or whatever. Fine. But now you get the other nine as a token of his appreciation. How's that working for you? Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. When I look at that word redeemed, I want to tie this back to the God that walked through the flesh pieces. I want to tie this back to the merchant that gave everything for the pearl of great price. The word redeemed means to redeem by payment of a price, to recover from the power of another, to ransom, to buy off. It is Christ freeing the elect, that's you and I, from the dominion of the Mosaic law at the price of his vicarious death. And lastly, to buy up, to buy up for one's self, for one's use. The pearl of great price. He bought it for himself. It's one-way love. He loves you, and it's got nothing to do with what you can give back. So it allows us, when we know that, to love a world that's got nothing we need and we don't have to expect or desire anything back from them 
we can love them because we're loved. And that's how it works. Amen? Let's give the Lord a shout today.